Welcome to episode 112, Seeing Clearly, the basics of supporting clients experiencing vision loss, featuring Deb Marinos, certified rehabilitation counselor, interviewed by Elizabeth Iriez. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am honored today to be joined by Deb Marinos. Deb is a mental health counselor and certified rehabilitation counselor in the state of Oregon. And one of her specializations is working with people who are either legally blind or are experiencing vision loss. Deb, I know that this topic is very personal for you, and it's something that you've integrated in your professional life as well. Thank you for joining us, and why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to have this specialization, but also what this particular topic means to you. Thank you, Beth. I'm really glad to be here with you. I really want to give people an opportunity to learn how to interact with people who are struggling with vision. My own background, kind of unique, I grew up with two sisters. Um, My older sister, when I was in grade school was diagnosed with some sort of eye disease. We never knew what it was. And then the next 10 years or so, maybe 20, we kept kind of watching her to try to see what she could see, what she couldn't see, but she wouldn't talk about it. She didn't, we had no clue what it was or what it wasn't. Um, So as we watched, you know, fast forward to, I'm a busy electrician with three kids and I get diagnosed with that disease and it's called uh, retinitis pigmentosa, and it's blindness by virtue of field of view. So it's not fuzzy vision. I have very clear central vision. I can see color. I can see normal print, but I can't see anything from the sides. So it would be like wearing binoculars and going to say, for example, you went to a sporting event and you wanted to find somebody on the other side. And if you had to look with your binoculars across everybody, the odds of finding anybody is pretty limited. Yet, if they told you where they were, like what row and what section, and they said, I'm wearing my goofy hat and I'm doing this and that, then you would be able to track it down and you could actually see them and wave at them Mm -hmm. and everything else. You just can't find stuff. So, these, you know, it's really unique in that people cannot see this in themselves what they see looks normal. So they have no real awareness of this. They may be told that they're um, clumsy or they they notice they fall down. In my case, I had five fractures in three years and couldn't explain, couldn't, you know, that was my first clue. But when I went to the eye doctor to find out what I had, the first eye doctor, um, you know, and she said, well, what makes you think that? I said, well, the fractures and then my sister has something And I keep making 11 muffins. You know, you have 12 muffins Mm. in a pan, and it would be 11. So I'd turn a pan every which way because the kids used to tease me about my oven mouse that ate one muffin. And, you know, she told me, well, okay, I've checked everything. Here's a picture. I really think you need to go see a counselor. You're just anxious about nothing. So I went along going okay. And then finally, one day, there were only 10 muffins. So I went to a specialist. And that specialist, oh, yeah, you have it. And I showed him my pictures. And he goes, oh, look, that's a really good picture of retinitis pigmentosa. When was that? And oh, by the way, you're legally blind. You have less than 20 degrees field. And so I was 35. And that was quite an amazing journey for me to figure out, you know, am I going to drive? Am I not going to drive? Am I going to use a cane? Am I going to go to training? You know, but I was so determined to keep my children cared for and provided for and to be able to continue doing my job and run my company and um, later go to college. So that's what I've been doing. But the biggest reason that I teach these classes is when I was working as a rehab counselor for the state, when I went back and got a master's degree in counseling, um, people were constantly, well, you know, it's really scary to get a stick in your hand and go out and start crossing streets and not have any idea who's going to run you over, trying to use your Mm -hmm. ears to figure out how far apart they are. And some people couldn't handle it. They had underlying anxiety disorders. They had depression. They had a lot of things which would be normal and natural. 
I would send them to a mental health counselor because the state didn't allow me to do that type of counseling. And then invariably on Fridays, usually, I would get a phone call about why are you scaring the bejeebers out of these people? This isn't reasonable. Why, why are you forcing them to do these things? I mean, you know, this is really, and so then I have to go back and explain. The bottom line is they have a choice. They can either deal with the fear, learn the skills, become independent, take their risks, or they can sit on a couch for the rest of their lives and not be functional, not go back to work. And that's just the way it is. So can you please help them get over their anxiety? Can you please help them deal with ongoing progressive threat called vision loss that someday you're going to go totally blind when you don't know when? So that's my passion is to try to teach counselors and therapists and people to understand how actually it's pretty easy to connect and pretty easy to very low cost to provide them information that they need so that you guys can get to doing the good work that counselors are do with everybody else and not get not let the blindness get in the way. Wonderful. Um, Deb, thank you for sharing some of your story. And I know that when you talk about this specialization, it's not something that you read in a book. It's something that you've lived. And it sounds like also have watched in, in family members. So why don't we start there? And for our listeners, in what I call my past life, before I worked in mental health, I worked in medical and actually worked in ophthalmology. And not that I'm an ophthalmologist, but I worked for a surgeon. And um, Deb and I have talked about how I saw things in the patients there and their adjustment to gradual or rapid vision loss and how emotional and difficult that can be. So why don't we start by just discussing really what is blindness? What is vision loss? What does that mean for people that are listening that really don't know much about how we even classify vision loss? So that's a good question. And I appreciate that. The, the easy way, I guess, is to classify it is by the different parts of the eyeball, or you can look at how it looks. And so in a class, I often have people get little glass simulators. And you can do this at home. Um, you can you know, take a piece of paper and and fill in your glasses if you wear glasses or a pair of sunglasses and poke a little one sixteenth inch hole in the not quite the center, but um, I have a template on my web page that will and there's other ones, but you can kind of do exercises and see. But in the interest of doing a podcast, you know, basically there's three parts of the eye that help us see. So the lens in the front makes things clear up and the cornea in front of that is so that we can sharpen the vision and focus on makes shapes into letters or whatever we're looking at colors and then the back of the eye there's a the central part that is responsible for fine vision color vision and then there's peripheral part which is responsible for night vision and for um black and white and certain and side vision so in the case of retinitis pigmentosa which may be part of other um like bartle beetle or um there's several genetic diseases mostly genetic that causes glaucoma would be one that's not genetic um causes peripheral vision loss a person has to be less than 20 degrees. And what that means is if you cut a pie, look at a pie and you cut it in half, that's 180 degrees. And then most people see about 120, but if you were to cut that pie into 16 pieces and give me the center slice, that's what I see. So it's a little tiny peephole. So some people call it tunnel vision or looking through. The other definition is 20 to over 200, which basically means that you can see the big E at 200 feet if you have so-called normal vision, whereas a person that is legally blind can't see it until they get 20 feet away. And if you want to check that on, you know, it's really interesting. Those numbers are basically the size of the letter at a certain number of feet, as you well know. And so um, what it means functionally is that people with, I call it either fuzzy vision or lack of field or peripheral vision is what it's called. And so fuzzy vision people have trouble 
reading medication labels, for example. They don't know what colors they have on. They can't look up a phone number. They struggle to see their phone to make, you know, um, socially. They don't want to go out with people because they may, may make a mistake on who they're talking to. And that's embarrassing. So after a while, they tend to sit and hovel in their houses. They often don't want to share it when it's coming on because nobody wants to lose their driving privileges. And nobody wants to have, you know, especially that um, if it's age-related macular degeneration, which is by far the largest denomination of that, um, which is now treatable to some degree, um, it nobody wants the family to come and say, oh, you can't live alone. And it's you know, it's totally true that with good training and good adaptation, they can stay safe and independent. There's many ways. For example, medication, you put a rubber band on the bottle that you're taking, and then you put two rubber bands on it if you take twice a day. So it's very, you know, no, you can't just try to guess which medication to take, but there are ways, many ways. And now in Oregon, especially, um, they are required, the pharmacy is required to give it to you either in large print or an audible format so that you can literally read your, with a new law that was passed last year. And many states are coming up with that now, but it's called script talk. And so it comes with a little reader or your um, cell phone barcode reader will read it with an app and tell you what medication is. So, you know, you can mark little bumps and dots on the stove and on the washer and the dryer so that you set those correctly. And then measuring cups, you can put little fabric paint dots on them. So that's the problem with fuzzy vision. And remember that 2060, which is like the third lineup, is enough to keep make people make mistakes. When it says cook it for 20 minutes and they see 40 or 60 or whatever number, 70 minutes, right? So there could be some major safety hazards and embarrassment thing. Um, so somewhere between, so they don't even have to be legally blind to not be able to read your consent form. So if you think about that, if they're not have an idea what it says, how many confusions and conflicts and things that are could be avoidable may occur because they go, well, I didn't know you did that. Well, you didn't read my form. Well, no, I can't read your form, but I'm not going to tell you that because then I can't drive to my appointment. Um, or I think I might not be able to. The field loss is different in that um, they can see color and print and can read the form. They may have problems finding the signature line. They may have problems finding you at a counter at the front desk. They may have problems finding the door. They may not be able to find the sign to know whether the bathroom is a bathroom. They may not see the object or the place you want them to sit down. So for them, the accommodations are more on the form of using like, instead of saying over there, you might say, well, that would be two feet to your right, about a foot in front of your foot. Or the Kleenex box, for example, it's on the coffee table to your right and it's about six inches from the end of the couch that you're sitting on. So they need descriptions. Their biggest hazards are falling and getting run over with pedestrian accidents. And um, if you look at the statistics, um, you can clearly see a diminishing, if you look at how many people graduate from the educational system with some form of, of field loss, either from retinitis pigmentosa or glaucoma or uh, perhaps a retinal detachment, different ways that it can happen. Um, and you look at the same number of people at age 30, there's less. And if you go back and look into it, they either fell off a loading docks or they were hit um, crossing the street because, and I remember this myself, my kids were my, you know, little CNI dogs before I had one. And um, I would say, okay, is it safe to cross the street? And they go, no, mommy, look, there's a bicycle. And I'd missed the bicycle. Well, I remember one day when I looked and I was listening because I was trained by then and I heard something. So I waited and I looked again and there was a garbage truck. And so I had gone from bicycles to garbage trucks in about 10 years mm. of missing it while looking, but not knowing that. And so you can see where that would cause some significant accidents. So it sounds like in the 
explanation you just provided, I mean, lots of sources of vision loss, but also considerations for clinicians and being aware of what those different kinds of vision loss entail, whether that's um, potentially avoiding social interactions or awareness of actual safety and risk factors when out in in the real world and concerned about living independently. Um, I'm curious, like from an emotional standpoint, when we look at the research relating to vision loss, what shows up? Um, you mentioned, you know, people becoming embarrassed and having trouble getting around the world and also being afraid that if people know that they're having trouble seeing that they won't be able to drive, they might uh, not be able to live independently. What do we find in terms of the comorbidity of mental health um, concerns and vision loss? There are some uh, very good studies out there, both on the both ends, and um, Cumberland did a study um, showing that even a slight vision impairment in children changes their quality of life. What they hope for, what they dream they can do, changes. In older people, um, McKellen and et al. have a uh, shown that untreated vision loss lead to isolation and premature death. So it's simply because, however all that happens, many different, you know, whether it's accidental or something else. But as far as the emotional hit, um, it, lately I've been doing some mind-body work and I'm, I just recently finished doing a group teaching them mind-body skills. And I've taught it to many other groups and I was amazed at how much benefit they had. And I thought, oh, okay, wake up kid. Here's the reality. This is a constant threat. So we're all living in uncertain times right now. We know what that feels like. We don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring. Well, imagine thinking, well, tomorrow be the day that I wake up and I can't see. Yeah. And so um, it's a constant threat. And of course, you learn to shuffle it off or deny it or, you know, do all the 101 things we do when we're trying to deal with constant threat, which ends up being actually traumatic threat. And so, um, you know, and that was what I, I had not seen, you know, those symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but I saw that in the group and I saw them resolve with the VA. Movement becomes scary for either type of blindness because you don't know if you suddenly like try to do an exercise move or stretch or do something, if you're going to smack your hand on something, are you going to get hurt? And so you learn to slow down because it hurts when you run into stuff. So you don't end up getting to do any really vigorous exercise. So one of the exercises I teach is shaking and dancing and, and, you know, chaotic breathing and all these different things, which are quite adaptable for someone that's blind. Because what I do in my morning workout is I use a TheraBand on a railing and I keep tension on it. So then I know I'm not going to hit the railing Mm. because I know I'm two feet from the railing because I'm on the end of my TheraBand. As long as I keep that tension on the TheraBand, I'm in a safe space. I, I haven't wandered off. I'm not going to go bump the railing or the post or the house. or And so for me, that means that I can truly move my arms vigorously or punch something or do something in the air and not feel like I'm going to get hurt. When you've talked with clinicians that go to your trainings and that are working with clients who have some type of vision loss, what do you find um, in terms of, I not, I mean, no pun intended, but what are the clinical blind spots for people that don't have any vision loss and what they may maybe struggle in, in recognizing and supporting their clients with? That's an interesting question. I get, I do offer 15 minute consults. And so I do get some follow up calls and some interesting, sometimes earlier on. And one of the questions is, is I can't sort out the difference between their personality problems and their blindness stuff. Tell me if this is a blindness thing or a personality thing. And 99% of the time when we dig into it, it's fear. And we all know that fear shows up in all kinds of ways. And if whatever you got personality wise is going to be aggravated. So that's one thing. As far as what people learn, they learn to ask questions and not assume. So they also note or pay attention. So for example, if a person has visual field loss, and I didn't mention it, they that's responsible also for night and dark adaptation. So they're going to walk through the door 
And the first thing they're going to do is kind of move out of the way of the door and try to stand there for a second or a few minutes. And it looks a little odd, um, but the truth is they can't see. They're completely blind when they come in from outside into indoors, mm. bright light inside, or even if it's nighttime and it's bright inside. So it's going to take them five or ten minutes to adapt, depending on how severe their vision loss is. And so they have no idea where the chair is. They have no idea where the desk is. They have nothing to go by. But if they can just stand there a few minutes, then the lights will basically come back on. And so learning that, they can learn some of the keys. And you can see just like um, when a person is being resistant, you'll hear resistance a lot. Well, this person is really resistant to doing something. I tell them to go do that. And they go, well, you know, and and they don't really say they can't see, but they come up with reasons. Mm -hmm. Transportation is probably the biggest disconnect um, in that if you have to ride paratransit, um, many cities, it's a 45 minute window and you have to have reservation a minimum a week ahead, maybe two to three weeks ahead. They can't suddenly change their appointment. They can't suddenly... You know, and then the, the buses are successful. I've tracked it over the last 27 years of my riding any kind of thing that I could find to ride is 80% successful, even if it's friends and family. So that means that, you know, you have a punitive late policy because we want people to be mm. responsible and we need to be ethical. But what happens to that person if they can't get there and it's whether it's their fault because they forgot to call or they said the wrong time or the bus just decided to go to Northeast Main Street instead of Southeast. And and you don't know until that bus doesn't come. You have no way of preparing ahead of time. And yes, right. over time, you develop. I have a list of people I can call last minute and I have a list of people I can call whatever. And now with Lyft, that's really awesome because you can just use your app and dial in and hope that there's somebody in the area. Um, so, I mean, it's much easier now than it was, but having a conversation ahead of time, okay, I understand this can happen and no, I can't build your insurance if you aren't here. What my counselor and I do for me, it's a $50 taxi ride to get to my counselor's office one mm -hmm. way. So we, his late fee or whatever it is, it's 75 bucks. I say, okay, what do I get for my 75 bucks? So then it's my choice if I want to pay for the taxi and then figure out some crazy ride home. It won't cost so much. Or I can have a phone call for 75 bucks. Because when it's so frustrating when that bus doesn't show up, you know, especially. And I mean, yeah. I am like, you know, fussy. I have an Excel spreadsheet. I keep track of every email I sent. I, I'm always trying to make sure it's not my fault. Um, but you can imagine. I, and I, I'll have to tell you a story. I went to the, I had a local doctor appointment it's less than two miles away the bus had a problem i don't remember what it was but they picked me up eight minutes after i was supposed to be there we went directly to the appointment i was 12 minutes late they said i'm sorry if you're 10 minutes late you can't be seen and i was sick and i needed to see the doctor so they said to me i said well could you please ask it was a 40 minute appointment and i typically wait two hours to see this doctor so I was having a problem with that. And I said, please ask. It's really important. So anyway, I found out later they didn't ask. But anyhow, the answer came back. No, we can't do anything. Now I need to make a new appointment. And I said, well, no, I can't. Because I first have to call the bus system and see when they can do it before I, because otherwise I have to call you back and forth and it doesn't work. And it'll have to be at least two weeks and I need to be seen sooner. So no, I really can't do that. And the person just said, well, stop being so unreasonable. Of course, you can mm. make another appointment. Well, I burst into tears. And that was embarrassing, too. And then I had to go sit down in the waiting room and wait because the bus wouldn't be back for 90 minutes. Yes, I could call them and maybe they would come back. But just understanding that, you know, this is this transportation thing is huge. And in fact, when I was working um, for the state doing vocational placements with people, I would have to have a real serious conversation if you want to work. You have to be on the fixed bus line or be able to walk to work because you cannot rely on paratransit. And if you do rely on paratransit, then we need to find you a placement where the boss says it's okay that you can get there once in a while, really late or missing, you know, because you're going to have to have a backup 
way to get to work because about 20% of the time is not going to get you where you need to be. As you're talking about this, I mean, it, it just screams awareness of privilege and the ability to see without any inhibition and how easy it is for me to just hop in the car and go where I need to go. And if I'm late, it's because I generally mismanaged my time, um, not because it's this really complicated um, situation to coordinate. Um, when you've worked with clinicians on understanding a client or a patient that is working through um, and contending with vision loss, how do you talk about bias and privilege and increased clinical awareness, especially if you have a clinician who does not have any vision loss and, and perhaps has very little familiarity of what that's like for somebody? How, how do you increase their awareness of what it's like for that person that's sitting on their couch or sitting on their own couch in their house and they're, they're doing it over the phone or, or uh, via video? Right. And, and it, you know, and it's true, video even makes the clues even harder. So um, I like to use stories. So I have two favorite stories. One of them is the blind enough story. So I talk about having gone to guide dog school to get my first guide dog. And I could still see pretty well. I was deemed legally blind, but I could pass for sighted without any problems. And so, but I was falling off of things and I really wanted the ability to move quickly and to be able to transfer buses easier. And so I thought, well, I go try this thing out. So I'm sitting there with a group of four people. Um, there were five of us in a team. One would go out with the trainer and the other four of us would be left at the, what we call the bus station. And we were sitting talking and I said, well, you know, I'm really concerned that I'm not blind enough to take this dog home. And the lady to the left of me, we'll call her Mary, she says, yeah, me too. And she had diabetes and she could see reasonably well too. My net across the way was my roommate who, um, Amy, and she said, oh yeah, I get that all the time that I'm not blind enough. And I'm sitting in my head going, that's crazy. I left the lights on last night all night because I wanted to see the dogs. They had just given us our dogs and I wanted to watch them and see if they were awake or whatever. And I can't see in the dark, so I left the lights on, and she never knew the lights were on, so I wasn't sure what she could see. And then the guy across the way, his name was Dean, and he says, "And um, yeah, well, I get that all the time, and here's what I do to him. And the next day, I can hear glass marbles rolling around on the table. And so he had plucked out his two glass eyes and let them roll on the table. And so we talk a little bit about what glass eyes do and how can you just pluck them out and put them in? Does it hurt? And, and he asked, answered all of our questions. No, it, you know, and, and then I said, but wait a minute, Dean, if you're not blind enough, I'm never going to be blind enough to suit somebody. What the heck do we have to do? What is this about? What are they saying when they say we're not blind? We can't really be blind. So we all sat there trying to figure it out. Where are we going? Well, gee, that's, yeah, well, and so, Finally, Dean says, well, I think we'd have to be like Magoo, you know, that cartoon guy with his cane up in the air, running around with his little black glasses, getting mad at everybody. The more functional, and it was um, Amy who said, the more functional we are, the less likely they are to believe we're blind. And so that's my way of saying, don't assume just because they're really functional and professional and able to work and able to get places and seem calm and assured, that they're not struggling with vision loss. And it's not like you struggle with it because you do learn to adapt some things and you don't even think twice. When I pick up the computer and I tell it to talk and it goes blah, 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 and it tells me where I am and what I'm doing, I don't feel like I can't see the computer. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one story. The other one is I invite people, and I'll invite them right now, to imagine walking into a medical office or any office for that matter, even a bank, and everybody that was talking stops talking as soon as you walk in the door. You, someone says, can I help you? And you start to move toward that voice and they say, wait, didn't you see the sign? You have to wait your turn. And so you wonder where the chair is and you, you know, everybody's real silent still. 
And then you do finally get to get to the counter and you hear, well, you don't really want me to read all of this to you, do you? Mm. Just imagine what would come up inside of you. What kind of feelings? Would you be like super happy, super connected, wanting to trust this person? And then if you had not seen any smiles, you hadn't heard anybody, you know, you they talk and they go, oh, I'm not talking to you, excuse me. Um, they say sign here and you don't know where sign here is and then they tap it. I love it when people go tap, tap, tap. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? And you can tell they're getting anxious, they're getting angry. Um, you know, honestly, the thing that comes to my mind is, do I really need to be here? Is this the place for me? I don't think they want to care for me. In that story, I think it gives pause in this idea of operating in a world that wasn't designed for you. And you and I have talked prior to recording this about the importance of clinicians considering just spatial awareness. And we'll talk more about that as we progress. But the example you just gave, you know, is out in the world that has nothing to do with therapy, but how infantilizing it can be to feel like the odd person out and needing extra time and that we live in a society that really values efficiency and and doing things rapidly and moving quickly through a line as, as quickly as possible um, and feeling like you're standing there slowing everything else down. Talking with you is, is such an interesting experience for me, again, because you have not only this um, clin- clinical experience of supporting people that are going through this, but you've been going through this for so long yourself. And if, and as you said, accommodated to what it means to, to be experiencing vision loss. Um, when it comes to clinicians understanding um, how to support somebody that is just, let's say they they just went to the ophthalmologist and they're, you know, whatever they have cannot be easily corrected. So it's not something like cataracts that there will be a surgery and then their vision will be generally restored. So if we're looking at something that's going to be progressive, if a clinician doesn't have experience supporting someone, do you recommend that they refer out to someone that specializes in working with vision loss? Or, or how do you recommend, I mean, the, the grieving process there has just got to be enormous. And, and my other question is like, how do you recommend that clients start to preface, I, I'm experiencing vision loss when they go to the counter, the grocery store, wherever it is to try to operate in the world and I guess get a little bit more time? Um, my only lived experience, I'm talking about this, when I lived abroad and, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously English first language, I was living someplace else and, and that wasn't my primary language. And while I was trained in it, I knew it was going to take me a heck of a lot longer to explain what I was trying to accomplish. And so I would always start with saying in the other language, I'm sorry, I don't speak your language very well, but I'm going to try. And then I would kind of stumble through it. Um, I have so many questions and like how you support clients here, but for that initial process, do you recommend that clinicians refer out or do you think clinicians can develop the competence to support clients real time as it's happening? So that's a multi-part answer question. Um, it is. <laughs> I believe any clinician can support a client around grief and loss and uncertainty and Uh, mitigating traumatic experiences, and especially having that safe place for them to share your, uh, oh, I call it those, you know, they're, I, some of them, we think they're funny, and sometimes they're very sad, but nevertheless, when you get to share them, we know that that makes us better. We don't have to keep secrets. Uh, The family doesn't want to hear how bad it is, because they're hurting right along with you, when you get that diagnosis, and so you really can't tell anybody. So without having a mental health counselor, you're going to be in a world of hurt. I do believe, and I have seen counselors switch. The basic um, to being competent is basically not assuming. And having met me, I'm hoping they know that there is such a thing as a successful blind person. So they can come to that client with the idea that there is hope, that with training, and with some good mental health support that they can indeed be and become and accommodate and stay independent. And so how they don't need to really know in every state, there's free services that are specialized, are um, eye rehab teachers that will teach them and mark their stuff in their house and do all that stuff. There's a ton and it 
course, it's been very difficult during COVID because they couldn't do house visits. But I listened to a presentation recently of somebody teaching O&M or orientation and mobility white cane skills via Zoom on a camera, on a phone with another person walking alongside that didn't know better, but would be able to, you know, prevent them from stepping in the road in the something. And it was from uh, Portland State. It was absolutely astoundingly powerful and effective. Mm-hmm. And they also noted the limitations. So the services are out there. If you can find a support group of people who have low vision or blindness and they have every kind of name under the sun, um, that will help tremendously because you know there'll be people just like them and there'll be people that have been blind longer and they'll say oh yeah that's right that hurts a lot but you'll get over it um i think the the biggest point and we have to do this with any kind of otherness i think we're finding this with my own bias that in my areas we all have bias it's to not assume um you know, to ask that very graceful question is, how can I support you? How would you like me to refer to what it is? So, for example, some people hate the word vision impaired. Most most blind people don't like vision impaired, yet that's the medical model. Everybody uses that word. Mm. Um, they'll talk about vision loss. They'll talk about hard of seeing. They'll, they may use the word blind, but not initially. And your point about telling people, yes, using a white cane and telling people, is the best thing ever. It is the least likely thing to happen at first. And sadly enough, I was just recently working with someone who decided quite early to because uh, um, she had little kids and so went out and, and other adults living in the home. So she likes to walk at night and she can't see anything at night. She can still see pretty good in the day. So she wanted cane training and she got told by an agency that she wasn't blind enough yet, which I thought was pretty funny. You know, I mean, if she's tripping at night, falling off the curb, she's blind enough, I'm here to tell you. But there's a sense that, you know, there's some sort of a magic cutoff line. So realizing that each person is unique, like, I mean, and clinicians have those basic skills. I want to encourage them not to be, just because they don't know about blindness, you can ask them and your client will tell you what their experience is like. They'll tell you what's hard for them and what's not. So keeping your sense of humor intact and and going along for the ride like you do with anybody's trauma or anybody's upsets or whatever and not getting sucked in, going out for your own therapy if you need it, if you get sucked into the awfulness of um, the so-called suffering because, you know, it does seem um, if we get into that place of, oh, my gosh, if I cover up my eyeballs, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Mm then we kind of start tanking and and but that's our work we have to get you know that that's not really a work that doesn't matter if if i'm a different color if i'm short or if i'm this or i'm that we we any of us can fall into a trap of thinking that would be so horrible i can't face that but that's our own work um i think the point you made about the use of different resources, the use of language. I think those are important considerations. I think um, for those of us that have worked in case management before, sometimes we can go really quickly into kind of what I call fix it mode, where it's like, we'll do this and then then this will be easier, but that there's really a whole process before that, which is, and you already you already kind of teased it, but working through the grief and the initial shock and, and what I've seen in, in patients is terror. Um, relating to exactly what you mentioned, which is when is when will that day happen that I open my eyes and it, I'm not even aware I opened my eyes because there's nothing to see. Um, that's a really scary thing and that patients, clients have to go through their own process and stage with a trusted clinician to be right alongside of them. Um, I also appreciate that you brought up the impact on the family and how profound that is um, for family members to adapt to a loved one gradually or, or quickly losing their vision. Um, let's take a minute. I want to talk with you 
kind of describe for me what clinicians need to know when they are working with a client who has any degree of vision loss from the signage like you recommended, like you mentioned, to the informed consent forms to spatial awareness in an office in the days when we can see off clients in our offices again. Um, tell us just kind of the the nitty-gritty, the the bare bones of like this is what you need to think about as a clinician, because for people that are um, not experiencing any kind of vision loss, I think there's just a, a lot of um, there's misconception or misunderstanding or even just lack of awareness of how it is to exist in the world if you do have vision loss. I would love to tell you that. I also want to remind people that the numbers, um, it used to say there was 8 million Americans. So, you know, whether or not a clinician, we all need to get ready to serve this population. The aging population, is the latest statistics from CDC say one in either six or eight, depending on what level of vision loss, people over 60 have some kind of uncorrectable vision loss. Um, if you look at the latest studies through, and they, those were all through census, so they were self-report. There's a new study that looks at the Medicare claims for who had marked a code for some sort of significant vision loss. And it's closer to 40 million. Wow. And it's expected to double in the next 10 years. And majorly from um, diabetes is the major cause uh, or, you know, age-related macular degeneration, which is being corrected. So um, as far as time, trying to find any of them, trying to find that clock on the wall, having no sense of when you're talking and how long it happens. I have like four clocks everywhere in my office right now as I'm working on Zoom, trying to see that maybe I might find one of them to know what time it really is. So when I work with my therapist, he knows that and I freak out. So I try now to use various alarms and I forget to set them and then I don't know what they mean. Yesterday one went off and I was sure it was the end of session, but no, it wasn't. And so he just laughs and tells me what time it is. Um, he knows I got this thing about not trying to take too much time and I can't see it. So I got a braille watch and I was so excited with that. Well, the darn braille watch, if you touch it too hard, it changes the hands move. So it's not mm -hmm. right. Um, I have, so working it out, however you're going to do that, if you're gonna, whatever your sessions are like, figuring out time is important. As far as documents, most blind people or visually impaired and low vision, anybody that needs a different way to read, iPhones and iPads come already set up with voice and with a lot of screen adjustments. Some Android phones do have good um, change of size of font and things. So if you can send them a plain document, a Word document without any fancy formatting, I got one the other day with an agenda and it had columns. So it read 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Then it said opening agenda something and I was supposed to somehow match the things together so it needs to be a plain old word document without any kind of formatting mm. it's very accessible or just an email just tell me you know my appointment is that blah 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 a simple um, way save an appointment card if you're in the habit of doing when we do get back in person a three by five card and a sharpie it's probably the cheapest accommodation just by not using pencil or pen. It's a little wider. It's a little bolder. And you ask them in part of my class, I have a printed up sheet that has different size fonts on it. And I say, what size font do you prefer? And if they say, I can't see any of these, then I know that large print is an issue. There's some very um, nice low cost digital recorders now that record onto a sticker. So say you have some forms that you want someone to listen to. The little recorder has a little headset and you just wave the recorder over the sticker and it would read the whole form to them. If you had an old iPad and you had the forms on them, they could then turn on the speech or use their fingers and make it whatever size they want and they could read it. For signing forms, something called a signature guide, which is basically a piece of cardboard with a square hole in it, the size of your signature line. You want to make it so that it, the line's in the middle because, you know, some letters go below and above. Then the person, you put it down on the paper where it is to sign. They feel the signature guide and they've had any training at all. They've been trained to use that. 
So then they can just feel where they're supposed to sign. And it feels so good to know that you're actually signing on the line. That it's not looking bad somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's nice to look good. It, and it's extremely important to um, have those painful conversations. You know, if somebody comes in and they're completely mismatched or they're not looking good or there's something that's obviously and nobody's told them, believe me, you don't say a word and then they leave and somebody tells them and they go, that person didn't have the courage to tell me the truth. You've lost some trust. So it's really important to, you know, as kindly as you can, just say, are you aware that da 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 or whatever? And so, you know, then you become a team in making them look good. You don't assume they can't look good. And you don't assume they can't do something. And if you don't know how, then you say like you would for anything that's outside of your realm. You know, that really needs to be researched. Would you like me to help you find some resources? Or should we, you know, are you going to get back to me if if you need some help with that? You know, Braille, if you had to have, if you have a Braille reader, it's relatively easy now. You just send the same Word document or PDF to, um, there's several companies. And one big one is Horizon for the Blind. Uh, they do contract work for many, many companies, utilities and insurance companies. But there are local companies, too. And they, it just comes out of a Braille printer. And the thing to realize, if somebody needs a document and it has to be in 40 size font, so now it went from three pages to 100 pages, all you have to do is stick it in an envelope and stamp free matter for the blind. You don't even have to pay for it. Once it's larger than a certain size, there's a, a exemption from the post office that it can be sent free. You can't send commercially asking for money. You can't send you bills that way, but you can send any kind of information or forms or whatever. But just the kindness to say, I understand that you um, are struggling to see, you know, how can I help? Is there a certain font that helps? Do you, you know, what, how do you prefer to have things? I find that I need to record as much as possible my counseling session because I'm so busy trying to make sure that I'm doing everything, keeping track of the time, doing this and that. Sometimes I just can't keep it all in my head. So the ability to go back and hear what I said and what the answers were and how it all worked is sometimes hugely helpful. Meditation, imagery, you know, all the things we do to teach people to ground themselves and mindfulness, having a few of those for those moments when the world, literally, as I say, the wheels fall off the wagon and there I sit and now I have to figure out what to do oh my gosh and sometimes there's some really amazing moments um it's so helpful to be able to hear that counselor's voice it's a constant place a safe place you know and you can turn it on and sometimes I don't even listen to the whole thing it's just hearing the voice and as I say lots of ums lots of ahs I can't see when your face changes as easily as other people Mm -hmm. so you know those head nods and if and if a person's really blind you might want to say I'm smiling at you right now my eyebrows are scrunched up because I'm really confused you know I've got this faith man what you just said that just upsets me so much to hear that someone would treat you that way I'm really having to struggle with that does that make you mad too because they can't see necessarily you know so learning to verbalize what you um would normally be able to see I think you just mentioned some really important points. One of them that really stood out to me was um, the opportunity to record. That's certainly something that I've heard asked in therapy sessions before. Um, and clinicians have struggled with like, do I say yes? But that consideration of like, if you're working with someone who's experiencing vision loss, you bring up a really important point that it can be so distracting and consuming to be thinking about the time and where you're sitting and, and, um, and just being basically aware of your spatial presence in the room, the value in having that recording and being able to take it and review it later. I I think that's a very valuable point for our listeners to be aware of those kind of accommodations. Um, Deb, you've brought up, it sounds like for you, you find one of the best questions that people can answer is simply what can I do to help you or what can I do to help make this easier? Um, what, how about what not to do? Let's spend a minute talking about that. Um, when working with someone who is experiencing vision loss, what are some of the, yeah, never say that, never do that kind of things that either you've experienced or you've seen in your clients and in your community? So there's probably three big ones. One is never touch a blind person without permission. 
super sensitive about touch. Mm -hmm. um, don't assume they need help just because. If they say no, respect it. You know, if you're really concerned that they're in danger, then, you know, you can obviously express what you're concerned about and have a conversation, but don't assume. And then um, the third one is, is, I don't know, I guess that story I told you about the, you know, I was trying to get a form from a clinician and from another agency. And I just explained who I was and what I needed it for, that I was going to do a research project. And what I heard was, oh, I'm so sorry you're suffering. I mean, enough times to make me really get mad. I didn't want that. I wanted what I came for. So I guess listening, not using, not being so, um, I loved your, your quote of how can I make this easier? And um, I guess the other thing would be not shutting down their upsets or their emotions, which most of us try not to anyway, but there tends to be, um, there's a period of time, probably longer than some griefs and losses and of where you need to talk about blindness related things over and over. Mm -hmm. And um, so it would be important to, because it just really isn't anybody that'll listen. Yeah. You bring up something there that comes up a lot in the treatment of chronic pain and this idea that it's going to be around forever. Um, and I think um, sometimes clinically, clinicians, we may get wrapped up in the treatment plan where it's like, we need to be working on X, Y, and Z. And and that sometimes these more chronic things that I think all of us deal with some kind of chronic thing, whatever that is, but we have moments where they can be really debilitating and then other moments where, you know, not so much. And to be aware as a clinician that there are going to be times where something just gets really frustrating or really sad or re really scary and being able to kind of put a pause on that treatment plan about that hard conversation with your sibling and come over here to the day to day this thing happened at the grocery store or at the bank or whatever it is. Um, and and for our listeners, so when when Deb and I first started talking about doing this podcast, my awareness as someone you know that that doesn't have any vision difficulties, um, well I do, but not significantly enough to to really uh, cause me much difficulty in the world. Um, asking Deb, what what can I do to support you? And being aware that I, as a practitioner and as an interviewer, wanted to be conscientious. I think a lot of clinicians might be scared to ask that question because there's an assumption of like, you know, you, Deb, you client, whoever that is, might tell me what they need. Will you speak to that for a minute and the importance of clinicians making space um, for an accommodation or for a request instead of waiting for a client to say, hey, can you please? That permission is golden. Um, it makes you feel like you belong there. It gives you a sense that this person might be trustworthy, that they care. I mean, it just speaks so strongly to, um, you know, that inner need we all have to be wanted and needed and to be acceptable and okay. And, you know, it's, it's very often that you hear, no, you can't do that. And so you spend a lot of time fighting. And so I think a lot of the resistance and anger that people get from blind people is because they come with a preemptorial ready yeah. to try and get what they need. And, um, and the other piece, too, is the fatigue. And I forgot to say that. You don't know how many things they tripped over or what rude cab driver or what bad things happened. Maybe the bus driver left them off two blocks from their real destination. Maybe, who knows what, maybe the door smacked them and got their finger on the way in. And they don't want to talk about that. But you're sitting there not realizing that, you know, I mean, for example, this week, my speech software on my computer quit running. My, um, I had to have some surgery and I had to have this. I had a five-day conference that was totally exhausting and I had to do four more things. And so I had to be really super careful yesterday to increase my self-care and to find somebody to tell them how bad it all was. But you can imagine suddenly as a clinician thinking, oh, my gosh, this person's like totally out of control, totally left over. But no, it's just a case of so many things crashing on top of each other. So it's having the patience and kindness and fortitude to be able to kind of run through it and then, you know, just honor the fact that, oh, it was a super bad day. Yeah. Um, you talk about in your trainings 
different tricks that sighted people can use to um, walk walk a moon in someone else's moccasins, so to speak. Um, I think, you know, for me, as you and I have discussed, I have a bit of an advantage because of the work that I did before and and having a lot of familiarity with meeting people at the front of the doctor's office and saying, how can I help you? And can I touch your elbow? And so I, I'm used to operating in that environment. Um, how do you recommend clinicians become more competent in supporting people that are experiencing vision loss um, so that they they feel confident in their own ability to to do their job as therapists and also have the awareness um, of supporting these additional potential additional considerations outside of just the therapy, so to speak. So, I mean, obviously taking another class that's longer where you get to do all of the little glasses and the exercises, um, there, there's some really, and the easiest one is the RP glasses or their little hole in the glasses, which, you know, literally you can do however you get a little tiny hole. Um, if you sprinkle a bunch of coins on the floor and you pick them all up, I used to do this in my office because I would get a, a medical report, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. Every person with the exact same medical report operates totally differently. Mm -hmm. One person would be impacted, the other person would be. And so I would sprinkle and I'd say, you can keep all the money that you find. And then I'd say, okay, well, and I would take my broom and I would show them that with my little Swifter mop, that's my favorite tool at home, um, that you can scoot them all together and they're in one pile. I use a little stroke. So I'm like you were kind of cleaning, squeegee cleaning a window. So I use patterns and I get everything and put all in one pile. So I teach them one tiny thing or maybe brushing their teeth. But you can learn so much on YouTube these days. There's a lot of blind people who... Um, for example, sighted guide is what you're talking about when you touch the elbow. It's really good to learn how to do that correctly. And that's something that can be learned in five minutes. And you watch a few YouTube videos and practice it with somebody. And and all of a sudden, you'll be realizing that that's pretty good. So um, there's worksheets. There's things. Um, there are several uh, this year because their conferences went online, the virtual conferences, both the Foundation Fighting Blindness and the Ushers uh, Coalition had, both of them had mental health, uh, one was a Q&A and one was an actual presentation, were absolutely excellent. And both of them were from um, clinicians like myself who are visually impaired or both vision and hearing loss. Um, and they were, you know, talking about families and how to, you know, the story I loved um, was that she wanted gummy bears and her husband, said, okay, well, and she wanted a certain kind of gummy bears. So he came with 12 other kinds of gummy bears, but they weren't the right ones. And she's struggling because she wants to be nice to him and say that she likes them, but she really did want those one kind. So in her head, she's wishing she had gotten the personal shopper because mm -hmm. with the personal shopper, it's a standard interaction. I just ask what I want. They bring me what I want or they tell me, no, it's not there. There's none of all this other assistive kind of compensatory mm. behavior where we give us other things because we want to make you happy. And so it was really, I mean, so those YouTube, you know, or those conferences, they're free. You can, they're recorded. You can go watch them. There's a lot um, available for anybody that truly wants to do that. And Deb, for our listeners that are interested in learning more about you and about your work, um, I know you've been doing your own online trainings. Tell me, tell me about that and, and what people can, can learn from those and how to get in touch with you. Great. Um, so adaptabilityforlife.com is my website. And my email is deb, D-E-B, at adaptabilityforlife.com. And um, I do have some blogs on there. I have an on-demand class that I just opened up. And then I also do um, contract four groups of four or more. I'll do a Zoom type class. Um, the biggest difference in them is that we take a lot of time to go through the adaptations and the things that make things easier. Not yeah. because I expect clinicians to learn it all, but it's pretty easy to learn. But it, with what I have noticed in the course of the course is people begin to get the idea that yes, this can be conquered. This can, you can live independently, you can succeed. And so when a clinician, and it's so fun to see the light bulbs, you know, at first it's really scary. And then at the end they're going, oh yeah, I get this, this will work. 
And they're also rooted in the reality that this is seriously an issue emotionally and physically. And it's not something you can just go, oh, well, if you're, that's not so bad, right? You don't need to do anything. I mean, you just can't see a little bit, right? You don't want to do that to somebody. You want to say, oh, really? Okay, we need to look into this. How are you feeling about this? Okay, what do we got to do about this? This is not something you would just say, you know, it's kind of like cancer. You wouldn't say you got a little cancer. Let's not worry about it yet. You know, you want to make sure that people are taking it seriously, but also realizing that there's a huge difference between those that are trained and those that are not. Um, Thank you. I think that's really helpful guidance. You just offered so many resources. Um, And again, your website is adaptabilityforlife.com. Deb, you and I could keep talking on this topic. I think you, again, bring such a unique perspective to this because of your own experience. And so there's an element here of the emotional labor that I think really sheds light on topic that is very unique. So thank you for sharing some of your own stories, your experiences and bringing it all together for our listeners. I think it's really valuable. And thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you again. And again, for those of you who wanted to get in touch with Deb, you can reach her at Deb at adaptabilityforlife.com. Thank you so much, Deb. I really appreciate it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.